This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am excited to share that as this second season gains momentum, we are at 14,900 downloads in 40 countries worldwide. Clearly, we tapped into a thirst for ideas and stories from imaginative and innovative educators and education leaders engaging students across the Hawaiian Islands. In the last episode, I talked with Buffy Cushman-Pates, the executive director of SEEKS, the school for examining essential questions of sustainability. My guest today taught special education in the Hawaii State Department of Education for 13 years. Her name is Danielle Mizuta, and she earned two masters in education degrees from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. One is in educational foundations, and the other is in special education and teaching. She served as a state-level lead mentor for our Hawaii public schools, mentoring teachers new to the profession in their first through third years. Danielle also trained master teachers in instructional mentoring, coaching, observation, and analyzing student work that they might support new teachers at their schools. She served a term as a Hawaii Hope Street Fellow and Regional Teacher Fellow Coach with Hope Street Hawaii. She currently serves as an instructor for Leeward Community College and as a learning support specialist at Punahou School, supporting faculty, staff, and families of students with learning differences. Danielle and I go back, way back, so it is particularly wonderful for me to have her on the show today. Her commitment to kids and to her fellow educators is hugely inspiring to me. And now, here's my conversation with Danielle Mizuta. Danielle Mizuta, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Awesome. So, Danielle, we have a format for our What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. It's called 10 Questions. So I'm going to work through 10 questions with you, and you just knock these pitches out of the park, okay? Okay, I'll do my best. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to dispense with the typical approach to an interview where I ask about your pathway to teaching and where you're from and where you went to high school and all that so that we can jump directly into the deep end of the pool. So four years ago in 2016, the Windward District Office Autism Team was named Hawaii Department of Public Instruction's 2016 Team of the Year. And you were one of the 23 members of that team, which is awesome. So for the lay listener, Danielle, what is autism? What specific work did this Windward team do? And what brought you to working with autistic kids? Oh, my goodness. Well, so it was a true honor to be able to work with the Windward District Autism Team. Um, We were a group of special educators, um, counselors, speech pathologists. It was a a 
big group of us and autism EAs who had this incredible amount of training in working with a really diverse group of students, K-12 in both complex areas of the Windward District. We had an amazing leader who was extremely innovative and it's hard to find sometimes someone who is willing to kind of uh, not necessarily break the rules, but find different pathways to meet students' needs. So we uh, serviced schools with students who had autism spectrum disorder. And it's one of the categories that a student can qualify for to receive, you know, special education services in the public education system. It has it's hard to explain in the sense that there's a range and, like I said, spectrum of challenges that sometimes will present itself for a student. Could be social, academic, could be a combination of things. And we were able to work with teachers and schools and help provide appropriate services and supports for students to access their learning. So it was a really huge honor to be nominated for that. Um, and I think when, when people say that it's a, it's a true team and group effort, um, that was definitely what it was. We were all bought in to continuing education, you know, our reflective practice. I think we had very strict and meaningful training and professional development in place, which I think really, really helped us kind of rise to the top. So it was great. I loved my time there. And and what was it? I mean, was there something about working with autistic kids that that you know attracted you? What what brought you into that? Well, I mean, my whole educational pathway has been working with, you know, I would say atypical students. Like I think if I think about it, I may have been that atypical student as well. Every student has these incredible strengths and gifts and Oftentimes it's difficult for students who don't fit into that traditional, you know, education box. And I have plenty of stories I can tell you about that, but mm. trying to just find where students are able to be successful and really working with the tools and strategies that we were trained in to unlock the potential of students. We so often, you know, focus on what students aren't able to do. And then we forget um, all of the things that they are capable of. So being able to just have some intense training and collaboration with schools and teachers and classrooms and families on ways to really unlock these students' potential, you know, with different strategies, different um, programs and curriculums, it was really incredible to see. Mm. So, so two follow-up questions. So first one is like 23 people on the team and you're covering a pretty large area geographically. Like, what was it like? How did you guys communicate together? How did you work together as a team, even though you were spread out doing your work across the district? Yeah, we were very spread out. So some of us may be um, doing consultation. Some of us might be tasked with providing professional development to um, an entire school. I myself was um, housed or kind of stationed at a high school and I had two model classrooms that I ran. So I had two classrooms where uh, one of them was really working with students on 
kind of life skills and transitioning out of high school. And then I had another class of medically impacted students and we were really focused on communication. And that was an opportunity for other teachers to come in, see some best practices, ask questions. We were pretty strict on, um, on coming together as a team, Mm. you know, every other week. I think what, what I really, really appreciated maybe after the fact was the agenda, the connector activities, the opportunities that we were given to really, you know, have our feet to the fire and explain and share what specifically we were doing, what data we collected and what was working and what wasn't so that we could bounce ideas off of each other. I might not ever interact with one of my autism team members because they are out in Kahuku, which is, you know, an hour drive away from where I am. But when we were able to come together and share ideas and strategies, it was a a really great opportunity to take some of their expertise and strengths and bring it back to my practice and share with teachers. Mm. So awesome. Here's the, here's the follow-up question to that. So there was, you you sent me this, um, department of education, uh, um, announcement, if you will, or an article that was written on their website about the fact that the team had, was was nominated as team of the year. And in that description, something really jumped out at me. There's a sentence that says the team provides training to teachers that incorporate virtual walkthroughs to provide realism and illustrate best practices in action. Yeah. What is that about? Yeah, we were, they were on the news, not me, but some of my uh, partners were on the news for that. So our leader at the time was, she's so innovative and really open to trying new things. We were doing, um, using technology where the teacher would have an earpiece and, or, um, you know, a video camera that would kind of follow them around. And then maybe the autism consulting teacher would be either nearby or virtual or in another room so that they could be watching the teacher interacting with the student, maybe focusing on a specific strategy. We had, you know, pivotal response training, just a whole bunch of different strategies that were best practices and evidence-based for students. And as they're watching the teacher Mm. kind of provide the support the student needed, they could be that, you know, voice in their ear to either give them support or offer uh, a strategy or comments. Yeah, it was, it made the news. It was actually pretty exciting stuff. It's interesting you say that now because we are so incredibly virtual now. Right. Um, Yeah. Wow. So like, all right. So right out of the gate, Danielle, my head is blown apart here. I'm just imagining, (laughs) like, I hadn't really thought about model classrooms that would be, you know, where, where an educator was you know, fully comfortable with being observed, like, you know, like cameras in the corners and, and all of that, that that would be a way for people to have windows on classrooms and to learn from other educators. Hmm. Hadn't really thought about that before. (laughs) It was certainly, you know, something that pushed us out of our comfort zone. But again, I think we were, you know, incredibly nudged, I guess, in that sense. And I, I always think about, you know, one of my huge goals in life is to have reflective teacher practice. I mean, we as teachers ask students every day to take risks. Um, and I think that's something we as teachers should yeah. should remind ourselves that we can do as well. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So before we go forward on the timeline, let's go back a little bit on the timeline. So you and I met when I was getting my master's at University of Hawaii at Manoa in 1999 and 2000. And (laughs) I think you were getting your master's at the same time. Um, Mm -hmm. And you were working at the Maramed Foundation on the windward side of Oahu in something called the Kailana Program. So what what was that work at Maramed and what was special about that program? So that was a super pivotal time, I guess, in my teaching journey. I... I got a job working at the Kailana program, and this is a residential treatment facility for at-risk youth. It was only males. They were ages 14 to 18 years old. The premise was to try not to, um, you know, start kids so young and getting them acclimated to uh, a life of incarceration. And so this was a program, and there are several other on the island as well, that really focused on the whole child and trying to rehabilitate and provide opportunities um, to really encourage them to navigate the family, school, you know, legal challenges that they were facing. Mm-hmm. And that I was I was hired as the teacher of this classroom of kids who were either uh, getting ready to finish their Time, I guess, or as an opportunity to opt out of going into the youth incarceration system that we have here. And the focus of the program, the Merrimed Foundation, is that if you, you know, hit rough seas, you can't just jump overboard and, and give up. So it was a really wonderful metaphor for mm-hmm. moving along in your voyage. And, you know, the kids would actually go on voyages. We would go on voyages to the outer islands. They learn these incredible skills. And I remember working with these high school boys, so tough on the outside, really struggling on the inside or coming from just these stories and situations that are unbelievable. And I had a student who couldn't read. He was 16 years old. And I'm trying to figure out how to connect with him. And I'm just asking him what he's interested in and what would he rather be doing right now. And he started talking to me about... um, pig hunting. It's pretty popular here in Mm -hmm. the islands. Mm -hmm. He proceeded to tell me kind of, you know, how to hunt, Mm -hmm. trap, kill a pig, um, the process of preparing it after this, this kid who couldn't read, who was, you know, on his way to a potential lifelong journey of incarceration actually knew every single anatomy of this animal, Mm. what it did, you know, like what the functions were. He was able to tell me, you know, how he cared for, you know, his animals that helped track them. He, he understood the lay of the land and how to navigate that. I mean, it was this huge kind of epiphany for me in understanding that just because he can't create a web and write, um, you know, mm-hmm. a piece to, you know, hook me or persuasive writing, what, what he actually wrote, you know, in that conversation mm-hmm. was, I mean, it was like a college anatomy course and right. it really, really opened my eyes to what is knowledge, what is learning and what are 
what mm. our students capable of. Wow, that's that's fantastic. And and then you know these kids would go on these voyages, right? Like you you describe a a voyage to Kauai on a on a three-masted sailing vessel. Like how how did it work? Like what qualified you to go on the voyage or how was that connected to the land program? Yeah, so I mean there's a, you know, there was a tiered system and they had to kind of you know make good choices and because we were kind of an experiential program not typical of a regular you know public school classroom their physical education was learning wayfinding and navigating and it was really incredible because we had other educators who were able to have them start working towards proficiency in the tugboat academy and other maritime Mm. opportunities in employment. So several of the kids actually, you know, graduated the program and moved on to that. But they have a process of students, you know, coming in, you have to give them some time to settle and get get acquainted. And then the voyages would happen every so often and the kids would have to work together. They all had roles. They were the actual crew on the boat. They had to stand watch. We all got sick. Um and that's that's a really interesting time also that you get to spend and talk with kids on what's going on in their heads. Wow, that's it was incredible. That's awesome. I'm you know, yeah. two two decades later, Danielle, um, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but around the time that Ted Dintersmith, who's the inspiration for this podcast, first came to Hawaii, I took him to Kanihunamoku Voyaging Academy on the other side of Kaneohe Bay in the mm-hmm. in the corner by Hakipu. And those kids are not those are kids coming from just regular school programs, so they're not you know, quote unquote, at risk. But there was this moment where when I brought Ted to the facility, the kids all lined, you know, got into a circle and they went around the circle to explain who they are and where they're going. And like half of them said, oh, I'm going to, you know, Cal Maritime Academy or, you know, other maritime academies. And there was just this chicken skin moment, you know, uh, of these kids who are aspiring to things. And so that's that's really interesting yeah. that, that, you, um, that you talk about that. So... So speaking of, um, let's talk a little bit about service learning, something we both have a passion for. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I wrote my master's thesis on the history of the service learning movement, and I argued that the movement was spending way too much time discussing whether or not service learning should be hyphenated or not. Um, <laughs> and it was crazy. So in 1977, you were the project coordinator and a grant manager, among other things, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa's service learning program. So I wanted to come at this by swapping stories. So you tell us your most epic story about a service learning program at the college level that you observed or became aware of. And then I'll tell my most epic story about a service learning program at the K-12 level. Is that good? Oh, gosh. Sure. Okay. So You go first. I want to say it was 1997. I think I heard you say 77. I was only oh, four. So that would have made me an Sorry. amazing prodigy. Yes. No problem. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yes. Okay. So when I got to the service learning program, it was because I had, I was an AmeriCorps, I was an AmeriCorps member. Uh, when I was finishing my undergrad in California and I moved home and I had some service hours that I wanted to finish. So I connected with the University of Hawaii service learning program. Mm -hmm. And it was great because I think we constantly were trying to 
uh, educate everybody that it's not community service. I mean, community service is not a bad thing. It's a great thing, but service learning, especially at the university level. And if we're going to talk about, you know, in education, we want to make sure that the service ties to some academic component. Right. And gosh, this was over 20 years ago, Josh. So you're really making me (laughs) dig deep. I, you know, it's, I certainly have a story and I want to try to remember and be honest about if it's, how I explained service learning, you know, to faculty and staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will, I will share what I, what I usually would try to explain. And, um, I, if we're talking about maybe an economics class and a faculty comes and says, I need my kids to understand the effects of homelessness on the economy. Mm, right. You know, one way that you could do it, especially in a university setting is show some slides, have them read a chapter, maybe have them look at some data or graphs, what we then would hopefully do would be try to make the 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 education or the you know the learning goal a little bit more meaningful and authentic so we would try to connect then that class of students to then have their assignment be serving 20 hours at a homeless shelter mm-hmm. where they might need to go over the course of several weeks for several hours at a time and truly get to understand what homelessness or even houselessness is meet the individuals that are affected, learn the ins and outs of, you know, the programs and the systems and maybe what's flawed about it, and then be able to reflect on what the effects of homelessness on the economy are. Right. So I'm always, you know, that's my jam is, you know, reflecting and just making some more authentic and meaningful Mm. experiences for everybody. So that would be my kind of Yes, we did service projects. Yes, we did clothes drives and food drives and, and and all of those things that are still benefiting a lot of people. But making sure that the understanding was to have an authentic service experience that tied to the actual content that you were studying in your university courses. Hmm. And true service learning, what it's all about is making the learning that you're doing relevant to the real 100%. world. 100%. Right? Yes, so absolutely. That's brilliant. Okay, so here's my story. So almost exactly at the same time in, in 1998 or 99, I was a sort of volunteer consultant with the Department of Education um, within their service learning branch. There, there was an office of service learning. And I was flying around to different islands, helping them evaluate service learning programs that had received grant monies um, through the Department of Education and AmeriCorps and, and other national service learning um, uh, organizations. And so there was this one trip that I made to Kauai who we went down into Hanalei. And at Hanalei Elementary, a fifth grade teacher had developed a program with her kids where they essentially became computer scientists and computer technicians. And they developed an, a, a sort of service office that was servicing the whole campus. In other words, these fifth graders were doing all the technical support on the devices that were on campus at that point. And <laughs> it was, I, I just, it blew my mind. And, and I got to visit with these kids and I got to talk to them. And then the teacher said, well, you know, it can't just be on campus. It has to go off campus. So they went to the police department and the fire department and they started servicing their computers, keeping them updated. And, on, and this was, you know, 20 years ago. So, you know, I just thought what a wonderful thing for those kids to have 
come away from that clearly feeling like they had given back to their community, but they had also understood their community better through this service learning program. So that's that's my story. I mean, that is just, you know, just an, one of, I'm sure, a hundred examples you have of, I mean, thinking about those kids t- 20 years now, and I don't think they remembered, you know, how they performed on their third grade math test, but yeah. I'm sure that they constantly have that experience to draw from even today. So, so awesome. Right. And this was before we really had started talking about project-based learning or Mm -hmm. problem-based learning and and things like that. So service learning is really in many ways sort of the core conversation before all of that happened, which I I think is really special. I think it's really cool. Um, Awesome. So I, I want to come back, Danielle, to special education and yep. give, give our listeners a chance to know more. You have a master's and certification in special education from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And I suspect the general public does not fully understand what special education is and how the law mandates it and the intent behind it. So what is your passion for special education, for special needs, and and what do you want fellow educators to know about kids with special needs? Mm. Oh, That's I have a, a lot to say. I have a yeah. lot to say about that. You go for so, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a passion for special education. And I think it's because, and you know, you and I have known each other for a long time and it's probably because we are of like minds and in the sense that all students can learn. There are, however, certain areas of need that sometimes students require extra support in. And in that event, I, I totally think that having that extra support is appropriate and necessary. I think sometimes we get really caught up in, like I said before, what the kids can't do. And I certainly understand the need to have some basic skills in our academics, in our behavior, and in our social emotional learning. And at the same time, I wish we would focus on strengths. So students that qualify for special education services go through a process where teachers and other educators or faculty maybe identify a need or a weakness where they want to get more information and find out more about, you know, maybe what the barrier is to this learning in terms of their behavior or their emotions or their academics. Mm-hmm. So a team will form and come together. We'll do some assessments. We need to involve the family and make sure that this is something they want. Um, There are a lot of legalities to it, but it's also important to know that parents can also choose to opt out at any time. And a lot of states offer special education services for students beyond the age of 18, which is typical, you know, uh, when you would normally exit high school. So a lot of states have laws where students who receive and qualify for special education services can go beyond that age, uh, 22, even 25 at times. So creating a plan that's going to be appropriate to help support a student all the way from kindergarten um, till they transition out of the education system is a lot of work. Special education teachers, as a special education teacher, I can attest to, you know, the feelings of being undervalued and depending on our setting, students 
really should be as included as possible uh, when appropriate. And then there's still settings where sometimes students are a little more isolated and kept from their peers. And Mm -hmm. I often found myself in what we call a fully self-contained classroom. So these were kids who had very, very, very uh, high needs and usually combinations of academics and behavior and emotional challenges. And, you know, there's always those Gen Ed teachers who I love who would just be like, well, you only have eight kids. So (laughs) it's so easy for you. And you always talk about Mm. all this paperwork you have to do. And so, you know, a a wishing goal that I would have, and I think it's certainly, certainly evolving and has gotten so much better is just a better understanding on both, both sides of general education and special education on, on what kids need. And I've also I'm really interested right now in universal design for learning and Mm -hmm. finding supports that, you know, we maybe are focusing on providing the support to one or two students in the class, but having that universal support for the whole class doesn't harm them and might even be helping the students that we haven't had our radar, Mm -hmm. you know, out there for. Mm. What was the rest of the question? Well, so, okay, so here's a follow-up question to that. We'll get to UDL in a minute, um, okay. a little bit further down. But um, so do, over the last 20 years, was there a moment, Danielle, where you kind of picked up that within the collective consciousness, if you will, a shift was underway from exclusion to inclusion. Like did special education, did it become, was there a moment where special ed was was being perceived more as something that we include in gen ed? Do you know where I'm going with that? It's like, did was there a place where people started to accept that all kids get to be together, that they don't have to be completely separate with exceptions, of course? Well, I mean, I hope you know, as we continue to grow and evolve as a human species, we start having better understandings of those types of conversations in general. I mean, I talk to teachers all the time about how um, my parents' generation smoked while they were pregnant. They didn't think anything of it. And that was because they didn't have any information. And now that we have a lot of information, it's not that... um, people don't smoke while they're pregnant now, but we, you know, I like to say like, we, we maybe have more information and we know better. And so mm. we, we can do better. And I think, you know, in special education is difficult because we are kind of driven by laws and things. And so it goes in waves in terms of us moving towards full inclusion, which also, like you said, there has to be exceptions because sometimes it's not appropriate for certain students and working with, general education teachers on making sure these students are included. I mean, I was mm-hmm. going to go back to those kids who are, have these incredible strengths that we sometimes aren't able to see mm-hmm. because of the curriculum map or, you know, the standards that we are trying to have them master. And so mm-hmm. I'm kind of really interested in, you know, what, what's called twice exceptional now where we have students who are extremely gifted and exceptional in, in certain areas with these, you know, outstanding IQs. And then they also have maybe a language or a reading disorder. So they're exceptional, you know, off the charts high in one, in one area of their, their academics and learning. And then Mm -hmm. they're exceptionally low in another. And I mean, yes, we still need to focus on trying to help support them in the areas of need, but 
why aren't we focusing on this incredible strength that they also have? Like we always have goals and objectives in IEPs or individual plans. And I mean, we should have strengths strength goals in there too. Right. Cause right. I think it'd be great to see what kids can do mm. and inclusion. I mean, inclusion for me is it's the only way there, there are so many emotional, social, you know, there, if you, if you're struggling as a writer and you're isolated with an adult telling you how to write, or you're in a class uh, with your friends and they're sharing ideas on their writing strategies, or they're sharing their graphic organizers. I mean, it's mm. just a no brainer to me that, all kids should be included. They all have something to offer. Right. Hey, listeners, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Danielle Mizuta is currently an instructor for Leeward Community College and a learning support specialist at Punahou School. But she has a long, long history in public education, mentoring fellow educators and working with autistic and special needs children. So, you, Danielle, you reminded me at just, you know at the time that you and I were both getting our masters, um, we that was the time of the Felix Consent Decree in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And I remember that there was this one journalist, Bob Reese, who was writing for Honolulu Weekly, and he was just relentless about covering the, the Felix decree and, you know, putting that up in, in front of the public. So I remember that was a, an important moment where the general public in Hawaii became very aware of special needs. Um, and it was because of that work that was going on through journalism and through, um, you know, legal means. But, yes. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So let's, let's shift gears and talk about teacher capacity and professional learning communities. Another small subject, right? Um, <laughs> so Danielle, you, you know that I have a dream that someday soon we will have a massive community of public, private, and charter school teachers all guiding, mentoring, coaching, supporting, and sponsoring each other day in and day out across the Hawaiian Islands. And my I dream, love it. My dream is that the majority of all educators in Hawaii will be engaging in capacity building, not just a brilliant minority. And it's about many va'a one voyage, many canoe sailing towards the same North Star, about truly believing that teachers are the source of innovation in our schools. So how do we get there, in your opinion? And what work have you done or are doing to help build that collective capacity? Well, I certainly think we're on our way. I think, just like you had mentioned with the Felix Decree, and we need to, you know, teachers specifically, I think, need to share the narrative you have an extensive list of incredible educators who are doing amazing things. And we, we need to get on the news and share that. There are so many really, really great things happening. I have seen so much good stuff and I just wish that it it would be less doom and gloom. I think, you know, for me, I love the public private charter concept. And I think I, I own that in the sense that I kind of, you know, I worked in the public schools. I currently work in a private school. I like to think that my time at Merrimed Kailana was a bit of a touch of uh, what maybe a charter school would look like. And so I, I intentionally uh, take these journeys so that I can improve my perspective. I have seen 
um, teachers in leadership positions. I myself, you know, with, with my journey going to the state level and the district level and then back into the classroom, I mean, that was probably the best thing that I could have done. Being able to have experiences inside and outside of the classroom and then returning to the classroom mm-hmm. because I'm kind of a rolling stone and you know, I, I move into different opportunities every so many years, I've been able to generate a really wonderful group of connections. And I, like I said, I I worked at Castle High School for a while and they have this incredible ag program. You just have no idea. They have acres of farmland that the students are, are using in these amazing ways with, you know, technology and farming and water irrigation systems. Um, and I was able to bring, you know, some of the independent school mm. members there to share and learn. I mean, what an opportunity for us to be able to kind of cross pollinate all of the resources that we have, because every school, big, small, independent, charter, public, they all have different things to offer. And we as teachers, we as teachers are, we're just so hungry for knowledge. I think all of my teacher's friends, when we used to be able to travel, you know, we would, we would come back and talk about like, oh, we drove past a school. Like, I wish we could have visited, you know, like only, (laughs) only teachers do that. That's right. Right. The, the opportunities that we, I think could be creating, which for me have been pivotal moments, you know, in my profession have been, to be able to visit other schools with intentionality, not just doing a school visit and having, you know, kind of the dog and pony show where the principal will take you to the best classrooms and, and this thing, but maybe, you know, true, authentic mm-hmm. one to two week experiences where, you know, it's intentional for me. I'm always connected to other educators who work in learning differences and special education I mean, those conversations that you can have and the strategies that they use, it adds to your toolbox and generates 20 new ideas that are just right. the tip of the iceberg and how we can better connect with students and get all of those strengths out of them. Right. And the collective consciousness, the neural networks grow because of those conversations and those ideas that are shared. And I, I totally hear you. Like before COVID, anytime I would go to California, for vacation, I would set aside a day when I could go somewhere in the Bay Area to see a school. It's just hilarious. Um, yeah, only teachers happens. do that. <laughs> only teachers do that. That's right, exactly. So, so here's a follow-up question, and then we'll take a, a break. How is the teacher leader different than the teacher reaching across the virtual hallway, now virtual, to coach a fellow educator. In other words, what has to happen for a teacher to become a teacher leader? And and why would mm. I why would I want to become a teacher leader rather than say a school administrator? Well, have you seen what school administrators have to do these days? Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I, you know, when I went into education, that was my, my ultimate goal was to become the principal of a school. And mm-hmm. I quickly uh, realized that what I thought and perceived and what I assumed was definitely not um, a lot of what the job was. Those are thankless jobs. And I, I have incredible respect for school administrators because they have to do things that we as classroom teachers, it it just doesn't occur to us, right? They're focused on the water bill and Mm -hmm. uh, vandalism and, uh, you know, 
how to set up security for events after mm-hmm. school. I mean, they don't ever get a break. They're always working. Um, and that's not really what I had envisioned or dreamed, uh, Mm-hmm. what administration looked like. And as teacher leadership, you know, became more of a, a buzzword and, you know, you, you hear these rumblings of, oh yeah, teacher leadership is, it's not like you're forced to go into administration. Mm. So, so what is that? I mean, for me, it was different avenues that I took and different opportunities that presented themselves so that I could actually gain another unique perspective into education and the connections that you make and the collaborative pieces in terms of, you know, like I said, some of the things that I've been able to do, I mean, I, I have teacher friends in New York. I have teacher friends that I met in Finland. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, um, leadership is so many things. So the DOE, actually has a leadership component. You can add it to your teacher's license and there are some specific criteria. So you can't just say, I'm going to be, uh, the decorations committee for holiday events, you know, for the school this year. And that makes you a teacher leader. Now that's a very important role. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there still has to be some standards and structures in place, but leaders, leaders only make teachers better. And for us to be able to go into different positions where we're able to stretch ourselves and learn things, and like I said, gain different perspectives, it just allows us to also be able to relate to those teachers who we maybe never thought we would want to work with or, you know, understand systems that never made sense to us. When you're able to go into a leadership position and learn new things and get different perspectives, it's... Mm -hmm it's just very humbling and it's really an opportunity for you to gain truer understanding mm. of, of where other people are coming from. Yeah. And I, I think teacher leadership starts with an educator just simply walking across the hallway and saying to a fellow educator, Hey, I need some coaching and maybe I can, I can offer some coaching for you. Do you want to do this together? It just starts with that simple step. Um, and, and off you go, you know, that's just the first part of it, right? Yeah. I think, you know, getting, getting started is the hard part now. Um, my good friend and past podcast, you know, <laughs> guest Sandy Camelli, who yeah. does teacher leadership Academy, we met through, you know, we met several years ago and we are dirt, certainly on different paths now, but we, we know the value of, you know, collaboration and coaching. So just on our own personal time, Mm -hmm. we meet, you know, virtually now, um, usually just on the phone for what we call, you know, just a collaborative coaching call. And we have a little bit of a structure where we, you know, intentionally have notes to share and wonderings Mm -hmm. that we're, we want to bounce ideas off of, but that reflective piece again, I mean, just having someone to bounce ideas off of, it has to be a trusting relationship the other person has to want it. Right. So if you're, if you're coaching and mentoring and maybe your principal is like, you have to go see this teacher who's struggling, that's probably not going to be as effective as two people saying we should talk and share ideas. And, you know, if you could help me with this and I could give you some ideas on that, that's, that's when the true magic happens. Right. 
Hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we'll come back with more questions for Danielle Mizuta. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today, we are with Danielle Mizuta, an instructor for Leeward Community College and a learning support specialist at Punahou School. So, Danielle, I know that we are jumping around on the timeline here, so so bear with me, listeners. Um, I want to talk about UDL that you mentioned a little bit earlier, or Universal Design for Learning. You presented on this concept at the 2019 Schools of the Future Conference last fall. Um, What what got you fired up about UDL, and what did you present at the conference? And I'm going to put a little pressure on you here. Your challenge in this moment is to hook a couple of listeners into further inquiry into UDL. Go. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well... UDL kind of is based on architecture and architects designing accessible buildings for everybody. It kind of started with trying to make sure that wheelchairs would be accessible in all buildings. And as architects started designing ramps and things like that, they realized that not only was it allowing access for individuals 
in wheelchairs, but also parents who had strollers with small children in them or delivery drivers who had a hand truck with several heavy boxes that they needed to bring into the building. And so it naturally, I think, kind of made sense as educators started thinking about supports that we might put in place for students who have needs and then being able to provide that supports a little more universally so that everybody would have more access to it. Mm -hmm. Um, There are three pieces to universal design for learning. You know, you want to talk about making sure that there are multiple means of engagement, often different ways to represent what you're teaching and giving the students different ways to action their learning and express or share, share their knowledge. So instead of just saying, everybody read chapter four, you know, in your classroom, you might have students who that reading is too easy or they already read it. You have students who are uh, second language learners and it's not in their native language, which will make it very difficult for them to read and understand. You have students who have disabilities in reading and that would be, you know, kind of painful for them to try to read. So different ways to engage students in the content and then giving kids different ways, you know, you representing it in different ways. I think of when I teach the, um, the lesson plan that we use is, you know, the structure of DNA. And so a traditional lesson plan would be a teacher saying, here's the PowerPoint slides, read these chapters, take notes, and then I'm going to give you a test. Right. And kind of trying to UDL that lesson would be considering, first of all, the, the specific students that you have in your class um, and what their needs are, and then maybe offering short videos, having uh, 3D structures of DNA, maybe having students engage in small groups, if that's appropriate or not, having them be able to share what they learned in different ways, not just with a test. Those are all you know, ways that we can kind of UDL our lessons. I think too, just some things that I love and I tell everybody, especially parents of young children, they're like, I want my kid to read. I want my kid to read. And I'm like, well, let's make sure we're doing it like developmentally appropriate and things like that. But I mean, turning just the subtitles or the closed captions on your devices Hmm. is, is a great way for kids to engage with text without even realizing it, right? You can throw right, that right. that cartoon up and the text is is going through the bottom and they're seeing words appropriately spaced with punctuation. They're just engaging with text in a different way and it's not harming them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it might just be giving them a little bit more information when it, when it is time to engage in that text when, when they're ready. Mm. So, so here's a follow-up question to this. It's, it's not specific to UDL, but it's more about professional development. So, so here's my worry, Danielle, the, the folks who came to your workshop last fall at schools of the future are like plants in pots. You watered them, mm-hmm. they, you watered them well, they perked up tall and strong in the moment and then they wilted later as the demands of the classroom beat down on them like the hot sun through the rest Aww. of the year. So so what what is the better way? How does your UDL presentation gain a second and third life beyond a presentation at a conference? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, when we did the presentation, uh, my colleague and I did it together. We we tried to to model universal design within our presentation. So, Hmm. you know, you're talking about helping understand uh, practicing comprehension after you read a story. Well, we wrote comprehension questions on a beach ball. And then I found teachers in the audience and put rubber bands on their left thumb so that a kid who may be worried about not knowing their left from right, when I say you're going to catch the the beach ball and wherever your left thumb lands is the question you're going to ask. Um, I modeled wow. tangible, actual ways that they could experience it and hopefully mm. take away, you know, the very next day. Right. Um, there are so many ways to make learning fun and... I, that's a great question on how, how can we, I mean, we, we gave as much stuff away as we could mm-hmm. hoping that, and I'm, I'm a victim as well. I'm su- super guilty of putting that on my shelf and hoping to get back to it mm. I think, and then finding it at the end of the year. But I, th- I think yeah. part, part of the key to this, Danielle, is that, you know, like recently, um, in the last, since uh, last spring, something has sprung up that really caught my attention. It's called, um, Hawaii distance learning forum. And it's a it's a um, elementary school teacher at Kanoilani Elementary, and she just put this together. Her husband is a, a web designer, and it's fantastic. It's a forum. It's a community. It's like the old days when we had Ning's. Um, yeah. And these these educators are cross pollinating with each other, you know, in remarkable ways. And I don't know, you know, who's doing presentations at conferences. But what is happening in the forum is that the ideas are being shared. So, you know, that, that idea with the beach ball, that's brilliant. Um, and if an idea <laughs> like that gets shared, right? You see where I'm going with that? Absolutely. And I mean, I have to, you know, side note, none of none of my ideas I don't think are, are really original. Like you can buy right. those beach balls from an educational company. I prefer to go, you know, the economical way. But, um, and I just write my own questions, but, um, like you said, cross-pollinating, it's the way, I mean, there Mm -hmm. are so many avenues with technology and social media now that we're able to, uh, get ideas and share ideas. And I think continuing just to keep, keep meeting more teachers and keep sharing your ideas because you have no idea what's going to resonate with the next person. And it might just be what that teacher needs to change the game for a student. Right. And that's, that's awesome. It is. Your ideas matter. That's the slogan here. Your ideas matter. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Slight shift in direction here. Um, bear with me. I'm going to paint with a broad brush for a minute. Um, and then I'm going to ask you to respond to my painting. Um, I, okay. <laughs> I believe that the majority of our kids here in 2020, K through 12, are still bored out of their minds in school. They have no agency and they see nothing or little that is relevant in their learning. So picture me in high school in the 1970s in math classes or science classes. I hated school, mostly. I saw little connection between life and school. And what makes this all so complicated, in my humble opinion, is that we conflate a a lack of engagement 
which is entirely the adult's fault with learning <laughs> differences. So I, I'm I'm not exactly sure, Danielle, what what the question is here, but I worry that that approaching like you know working around learning differences or or trying to mitigate stress before a test by doing yoga that we're missing the systemic issues here which is student engagement so i'm just wondering what you're thinking about that right now yeah i i agree with you and then i also want to say that i have seen many students super not bored and engaged and right. I do agree with you that it it has to do with that teacher, right? I mean, we know that the relationship that the teacher has with the student is important. Um, I, gosh, I think when I when I work with teachers and they're like, okay, I have this idea. This is what I'm going to do. This is what we need to, you know, this is this is what the outcome is going to be. We're going to have like this three page written project, double spaced, uh, they're going to, they're going to write it in pencil. They're going to trace it in Sharpie. And then they're going to have, you know, this drawing, this illustration, and it's going to be on an eight and a half, you know, by 11 piece of paper. And so me in my role, I'm thinking about mm. the kids in their class and the ones that are not going to be able to do that because of whatever differences they have, you know, they might have dysgraphia, which is, you know, difficulty with the physical act of writing. Um, and so then what I try to do is I have a conversation with the teachers and this is what I do for myself too and try to figure out like, what is the point of what I am trying to teach? Like, why am I teaching this and why is it important for the students to, to have this information? And if, if we can, you know, it's again, not my idea, but start with why. I think there's another opportunity for us because if you're talking about that student that's bored out of their mind, it's because, I mean, when's the last time you asked the kids how they might want to share their knowledge? Um, and so if we can start with why and figure out why it is important for students to know and understand X, Y, and Z, I, I've seen teachers start their lessons with that mm -hmm. and then try to engage in a conversation with the kids on how, how might we get like, what do you guys already know? And what, what about this makes no sense at all? So that then the teacher's serving more as, you know, a coach and a mentor. And then with their teaching expertise, they can figure out ways to make meaningful experiences to connect the dots and get those kids where they need to be. And, you know, understanding the effects of homelessness on the economy can be shared in many, many different ways. A uh, student who's, you know, really adept with video production could create right. a short video. Mm -hmm. And of course you would still have expectations and, and requirements and mm -hmm. hopefully a rubric of some sort with expectations on what you need to make sure that you're including. And then the kid who really is a prolific writer might be able to write from the point of view of someone who is experiencing homelessness or houselessness right now and, and what the tie to you know, the effects of the economy are giving, giving those students choice and you're not taking the teacher's role away because the teacher still has that, that knowledge that they need to guide the student to get to that end point. Mm -hmm. But I know that we teachers can be so much more creative because we are, I mean, look at the situation we're in now. I don't think anyone except for teachers would be able to still be making this happen. Like, 
we don't have money. We don't have resources. We're still finding ways to connect with the kids. Like we right. don't just give up. It's still happening. It's right. not perfect, but we're not, we're not just not doing it. Like mm. we are being creative mm. and it's possible. We got to involve the students. Right. For sure. You're right. I, I was super encouraged, Danielle. Um, the last Kamehameha Schools Ed Tech Conference that happened before the pandemic was last June, 2019. Um, and the theme of that conference was finding your why. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. We've reached yes. a milestone here, you know, when, when a conference theme. Um, and then the current Schools of the Future conference that's coming up in about a month, um, which is about reimagining education, that starts from why, for sure. You you can't reimagine unless you're asking, why am I doing what I'm doing? And yes. yeah, and involving, the, you know, the students in the process of that. So that's, that's awesome. So I, I want to... I want to, it's a great segue to what I want to ask you next, which is I want to talk about promises. So our Department of Education spent the better part of a year, two years ago, three years ago, um, getting public feedback on its five promises plan, which is now being used to help guide our public schools towards the year 2030. In other words, it's a 10-year plan, but it's not a strategic plan. It's not an ESSA plan. It's our promises to our kids over the next 10 years. And by the way, frankly, Danielle, I am hugely encouraged by the proposed promises, one of which is equity. And it, you know, what a moment to be talking about that, you know, right now Mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. So what I know this is a this is a big question, but what are the promises we should be making to our children, public, private, and charter? What what promises do you want us to make as a society, as a culture? Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so many. I think. You know, the focus on teacher collaboration, I think, is huge. I think so many good things can come from that. I I do agree on equity of access. And because I've had opportunities to experience different educational institutions in different settings and in different roles, there, there is a true inequity of access. And I don't know that... I know that we can solve it. We have to be creative. We we have to find ways. And, and I think we are finding ways, but I would love for us to make that promise so that every student has hmm. equity of access to their education. It, it, it's difficult when you're talking about, you know, what educators talk about in terms of making sure that we're tending to their academic, behavioral, and social emotional needs. Mm-hmm. And there are so many factors that we we can't control. And that shouldn't stop us, right? Again, teachers are creative and we can be more reflective. And so promising students equity of access, I think, is is so important. I think that to lead teacher collaboration piece is is one possible avenue because I'm thinking of students who you know, they're different learners, right? And we certainly know now that, I mean, we've been trying, you and I have been trying to advocate for, yes, you know, getting out of that mm-hmm. teacher lecture, you know, mm-hmm. fill their head and test them out. And that, what does that show? We don't know. And I think 
really getting to know your students and finding out what makes them tick and then providing them opportunities again, instead of those deficit goals, maybe some strength goals, because I mean, Hawaii is like the ultimate place in terms of connections, right? When yep. someone comes up to you and says, gosh, my kid's super involved and like interested in photography and, you know, they want to do this. I don't know anything about that. And then you're like, oh my gosh, like my friend's husband is a photographer and he would love to do, you know, like I saw on his social media, like how he was creating these really cool yearbook pages for his kid's school. Mm -hmm. And I totally bet if I connected you guys, he would be happy to X, Y, and Z. Right. And I think the opportunities, we're able to do that. And we would do it for our own kids or anyone in our own family. And teachers, you know, teachers are very protective of their students. It's like they are like their children. And I would love to promise that mm -hmm. to kids that we would be able to focus on a strength goal or, or maybe we could promise that they have that experience you were referring to, you know, at Hanalei Elementary School where, yes. mm -hmm. I mean, these authentic authentic experiences that are meaningful, mm -hmm. that, that would be incredible. You, you know, when I, when I first started this, this at MLTS and Hawaii thing, this most likely to succeed thing, I, I was looking for a tagline and, um, there was a, there was a curtain thing out there, uh, you know, what was it? 55 by 25. And it, and it referenced 55, percent of our kids would be going to college, you know, before the year 2025. And I was like, mm, you know, I, I respect that. I'm a little worried about the other 45, like who are they? <laughs> um, but then I, then it, then it hit me like, now I know what my tagline is going to be. So the tagline for at MLTS in Hawaii is a hundred percent by yesterday. And what I mean, <laughs> what I, what I mean by that is exactly what you just said. Exactly. It's like, 100% of students before they're done K-12 will have experienced something like what happened in Hanalei with all of its complexities. At least once a kid has to have an opportunity to be part. And I want us to promise that to our kids. Like you can't get out of high school without having some kind of really rich and engaging, relevant learning experience like that. That's, that's where that tagline came from. I love that. And I mean, adding to that, I think, you know, let's not forget the community piece. I mean, if mm -hmm. we don't have the community members right. involved and participating, these students are the ones that are going to maintain the community or be, you know, the adults in the community and having that community buy-in and relationship is, mm -hmm. I mean, the town we're both from, Kaneohe, that is the yep. ultimate community. And I, I love to, right. to say that's where I'm from because the community is so strong and the opportunities that, that schools have to make some really incredible community connections would, would mm -hmm. certainly move us toward that promise that you're talking about. And I think, you know, referencing something that you said earlier, I think one of the things that I'd like to do, and I would, you know, this actually happened to me when I was teaching at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls. There was a conscious moment where I stood up in front of my kids and said, you know, I promise you that you will understand the why behind my teaching and your learning. Like you will, you will get it. Like nobody can walk out of this room going, I don't know why I'm here or why he's doing what he's doing. And I feel like it's it's almost like a student bill of rights or a, 
or a, a family bill of rights is that the kid, you know, that everybody has the right to know the why. Um, and you have to be able, as an educator, you really, you, you really have an obligation, a responsibility. It is your kuleana to be able to explain the why to your kids. What, what do you think about that? I, I absolutely agree. And I think that reflective teachers would be constantly checking in with their students to make sure they were, they -hmm. were going in the right direction. And if a student's not getting it, that's the perfect opportunity for a teacher to say, I got to pivot. I got to figure something Mm -hmm. else out, involve the student because we think we know. And it's just incredible when you just ask them Mm -hmm. how, how, how might I make this so that it makes sense to you? And mm-hmm. they come up with some crazy, very simple idea that never occurred to you, not because you didn't have the knowledge, just because you have a different perspective. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's a win-win for everybody when when we're able to remind ourselves, like you said, I, I, I love that Bill of Rights for the students. And I think, you know, it's important if a student comes to us and says that, they're bored or it doesn't mean anything or they're never going to use this. I Mm -hmm. I think we should take that as a challenge and figure out like, okay, why am I teaching this? And Mm -hmm. if it is important, I need to make the kid have an experience or, you know, Mm -hmm. go through something that makes them understand and hopefully have a different understanding and perspective of, of why it may be relevant or important to know. Right. And the perfect opportunity to step across the hallway and say to a fellow teacher, hey, I'm kind of struggling with my why. Could you could you come spend some time with me? You know, right? it just it's 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 easy. It's, it's it's a safe moment to do something like that. So that's it is. It is. That's fantastic. Yeah. OK, so, um, Daniel, I want to spend these last two questions um, or I want these these last two questions to be about work you are doing to help fellow educators teach nonviolence, which seems mm. super appropriate as we come up to our <laughs> presidential election here um, yeah. in a few weeks. So um, as a ahimsa, and am I, am I saying that correctly? Is it ahimsa? It's ahimsa, yeah. Ahimsa. Mm-hmm. So as a ahimsa center fellow, you gave a presentation to a teacher leader academy focused uh, on Mahatma Gandhi. And in that presentation, with a nod to the incredible lives of Gandhi and Mandela, you asked workshop participants the following question. You asked, what significant events have led you towards your role in leadership? So I thought, let's do this together. So you answer first, I'll answer second. So what significant events, Danielle, have led you towards your role in leadership? And of all the, all the breakthrough moments when you realized your process towards leadership, like which was the most important? Mm. Okay. Well, I suffer from imposter syndrome, just like a lot of other people. And I appreciate when I get positive accolades and praise. And then I'm always wondering, like, why me? Because I don't, you know, consider mm-hmm. myself extra special um, in terms of of my profession. And so, you know, when I, when I went to that fellowship, the Ahimsa Fellowship, and learned about Gandhi and Mandela and what... They weren't, they weren't just born leaders, right? Like I said, like, you know, they had these really significant events in their lives that were kind of transformational that, that 
turned them into these leaders and it made them transformational because we have a lot of leaders in this world and they're not necessarily as revered um, as Gandhi and Mandela. So my, my interest was, you know, finding out like, what was it that made, made these leaders so inspirational and so transformational. Um, and I guess that was why I asked the teacher leaders to, to consider how did you get to this journey? I think for me, sometimes getting a position that I applied for, but never in a million years thought, you know, I would get, and then the, the coaching and mentoring position that I got where I was able to work, you know, at the state level for a while was a huge pivotal moment for me because I was able to get trained in coaching and mentoring. And at the same time was being heavily coached and mentored, mm. you know, as part of that process, that was transformational for me because you just realize that you can't do it alone. Mm. Um, and leadership is never just one person. Um, that would be one, mm -hmm. your turn. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So, you know, I, I read, and we're going to talk about this in the last question. I, I read the chapter submission um, for the Ahimsa book that's coming out. And, and again, I'll mm -hmm. ask you about this specifically in a minute, but I, I read what you wrote and wow, what a rabbit hole that was. I just, it took, <laughs> it took me in so many different directions and you laid out a series of, I think, where there are six or seven breakthrough moments for you. And, yes. I, and it really, Danielle, it really got me thinking about my own experience. And so here's my, my pivotal moment. In January of 2016, I screened Most Likely to Succeed, Ted Dintersmith's film, at Key Project in Kahalu, just down the road from Kaneohe, where you live and mm -hmm. where, where I grew up. And the reason why that moment was so pivotal was because up to that point, I really had cared a lot about education, but I never felt like I got anywhere. And I think the reason why I wasn't getting anywhere was that I was coming with my agenda and trying to get people to buy my agenda. And, you yep. know, you, you get into that for me, you know, the Rapoon family get into that righteous thing where you believe you're totally <laughs> correct, you know, and it just, it never, ever worked very well. And what happened that night, January 22nd, 2016, when I screened the film at Key Project, 175 people showed up, was that I realized that I didn't have to have any kind of agenda. All I needed to do was to put something really thoughtful up in front of people and then ask them to form their own questions about it. And we ended up talking as 175 people, you know, in small groups for an hour after the film, like till 10 o'clock at night on a Friday night. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that you talked about in your chapter, which came out of the Mandela uh, Gandhi thing is, you know, values-based leadership. And I think what happened was that my values, which was finding out what's on people's minds through the questions that they're asking, came out that night. It was quite a moment for me, and it helped shape me going forward. And I've joked with people over the last four years that I've really been like Switzerland, like I'm neutral. I, I, I have no dog in the hunt. I just want people to think deeply about what education is all about. 
So I, I really appreciate being able to read your submission. It really helped me to think about where my leadership comes from. And I'm humble about it as well. And I also have imposter syndrome, you know, but it feels good to know that that's the role that I'm playing, that I, I'm not coming with anything specific to ram down your throat. I'm just coming here to open up a conversation about what school could be. And I mean, that's just a perfect example of you reflecting, you know, on knowing that something in terms of the status quo needs to be changed and you tried a bunch of ways and, and had to pivot. And mm -hmm. I've been to several of your screenings, not only because I love the movie, but also because I love the, the setup, right? I mean, it's truly community-based and the, the crowd that gathers is, is not typical. It's not what we uh, always expected, right? You, you, mm -hmm you just think it's just going to be teachers or it's just going to be those parents. Um, it, it was, it's a true, the way that, that you and Ted were able to, you know, have those screenings in, in so many different communities, the spaces that you strategically chose, you know, the, the people in the community who you reached out to, to, mm -hmm. you know, invite and that really organic conversation that yeah. always provided extremely fruitful at the end. I mean, it, it was awesome. And, and it, it got those of us wanting to keep going so that we could meet mm. new people and more people and have deeper conversations and, and get new ideas. And I think that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's the name of the game. Thank you. And, and at the same time, you know, as I was reading your submission for this upcoming book, I was just thinking about how, you know, the work of nonviolence, it doesn't have to be, you know, sort of cliche, sit down in the middle of the road with your hands behind your back and not move, you know, as something runs you over, you know, right. I mean, and that's, you know, in some ways we show Gandhi over and over again, the film in classes. And I wonder what, what kids come away with, but really it's the work you, Danielle, have been doing for special needs, for autism, for, for troubled kids, for all, all of that is nonviolent work. All of that is community work. That's what really jumps out when I read that submission. And I, I, I admire that a lot. You. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I always start, you know, that presentation that I do, I've done it a couple times in, in different settings and I, I always have to kind of like preface, like, you know, I, I'm not encouraging you to, to go to jail. I'm not encouraging you right. to fast for 45 days. Like that's, that's what these people did. But I think the bigger takeaway for me was that, they were very methodical, right? In communicating mm. and building relationships. I mean, the relationships that Mandela created with the prison guards uh, is yeah. fascinating. It really uh, what is. those prison guards did for him as a prisoner. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. Mm. And to really, to really, you know, focus on the goal instead of your role, I think is, is another thing that's a huge takeaway for me because it, it's, it's this constant, constant level of communication that, that needs to happen. And so when you are, you know, when you are ready to take a little bigger step, um, that, that may need to get a little more attention, it's, it's not coming out of the blue. You're having these conversations over and over again saying, yes, I, I need to let you know that, that this is unjust. I need to let you know that these students aren't being represented. And here are some of the things I'm thinking. 
Right. And I'm thinking that, you know, by the end of the quarter, this is what might be more appropriate for them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you continue communication and you, you know, for me, I found, you know, my supervisor in the autism team was just so supportive. And it was like, yeah, we, we need these kids to have, to have what, what is written like legally binding in terms of supports. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, you do this or this is going to happen. It was, you know, months and months of, of communicating and reminding and, being professional and not swearing and, and all of those things. And it's truly a journey. It, it truly is. Right. Um, but it's so much more effective. I have learned <laughs> and, right. and it's harder and it's the long game and, mm-hmm. and it it's worth it. And trust is such a, an important part of it that when people trust that that step that you're taking that's a little different than you've done before is consistent with who you've been all along that only comes when you when you report your, yourself to people consistently over time well when you have those conversations they they build up trust within within communities and that's part of the nonviolence that's part of you know the process of leadership as well um, yeah. So, okay. So we're, we're down to the final question here. Wow. This is going by like a shot. Um, <laughs> so Danielle, in about 10 days, the Ahimsa Center will celebrate uh, the International Day of Nonviolence with the launch of a book titled Teachers Teaching Nonviolence. And you, a Ahimsa fellow, wrote one of the chapters. Is that correct? Is that your... Yes. Yes. I'm... That's heavy into the imposter syndrome and <laughs> yeah. super nervous and excited at the same time. That's that's fantastic. So as I mentioned before, I've I've read this submission, um, and it's epic. So in one of your reflections, you talk about a recent trip with a group of education colleagues uh, yes. that you took to Scandinavia, to Denmark, Sweden, and Finland. Um, Ted Dintersmith has stated repeatedly that Hawaii can out Finland Finland in five <laughs> years. So here's here's the final question, Daniel. What will it take for us in Hawaii, public, private, and charter, homeschool, community, business, nonprofits, what will it take for us to out Finland Finland in five years? Uh that was an incredible trip. And we kind of talked earlier about visiting schools, intentionally connecting with teachers, you know, who are similar to you. So I went with a group of teachers or language teachers and music teachers and math teachers. And, um, our leader, he was so intentional in making sure that every school, I mean, we were visiting two and three schools a day, public, private, charter, international schools. It, it was, I feel like, I mean, the the biggest opportunity and at the same time, I've had those same experiences here on Oahu. And so you don't have to go to Scandinavia. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I also was able to get another perspective because, you know, we go Finland. Oh my gosh. And when we talked to the teachers there, an interesting thing one of them told me was, well, if you Google Finland education in English, you get a very different search uh, you get very different search results than if you Google Finland education in Finnish. So it really, really helped me understand, you know, perspective again, 
Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're doing such amazing things. And I think so are we. And students are students wherever you go. They have a different system set up in terms of, you know, their their entire country is set up different than ours. So, but out, out doing Finland. What is it that's, fin- um, what, what is it that Finland is doing that we can do? I, you know, I'm a, Danielle, I'm a huge advocate for sure of come to Hawaii. I'll take you to all kinds of places where you can see yeah. killer innovation, creativity, imagination. But for a moment, let's say we're going we're gonna to walk on the humble side of the street here in Hawaii. We're going to say, hmm, we can learn something from somebody else. What yes. is it that we can learn from Finland? Okay. They spend a lot more time outdoors hmm. and letting and guide and doing a lot of guided, facilitated conversations in terms of uh, like what I think what we would would maybe say project based learning. And that was very evident. Um, to me, I, I think we need standards and I think we need data. I'm a huge data person because you can't move in a direction unless you have information. And then there has to be, I think, a healthier balance between experimentation and innovation. And that is certainly something that we can do. I mean, look at the resources the natural resources that we have here and all of the environmental issues that we are being faced with. We live in a place where we can access a lot of those things outside of the classroom, but still be in a very Hmm. much of an academic and learning environment. Right. I would love to see more kids to get those authentic, meaningful experiences that, um, Mm yeah. Yeah. I think that that would be it. And and connecting it back to what you talked about with Merimed, you know, that that trip to Kauai on that three-masted sailing ship, you know, it feels like a boot camp and you have to work your way to that. But that isn't just for troubled kids. I mean, all kids, right? Exactly, which is what I was saying earlier, is that every educational institution has this really, these golden nuggets of resources that why can't kids that don't go to Merrimid experience that? And why can't kids that have a small campus and no access to ag, why can't they go visit Castle High School and, and learn about irrigation systems and aquaponics and hydroponics and, you know, right. Experiment with, with, with different crops. I mean, that only will make all of us better. Right. And and at the same time, you know, access to those kinds of experiences, when we get back to the equity question, which we talked about earlier, you know, those, those kinds of experiences can't just be for kids who are at, you know, private schools or, or kids who are coming from privilege. This has to be the right of every kid to have an opportunity to experience some kind of a moment like that. Um, and it sounds like what's happening in Scandinavia is that that is kind of a student right. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think. I mean, we we saw the schools that we saw, and I'm sure there were other schools. You know, the same way you said, come to Hawaii and and we'll show you schools. We we got a glimpse, and it was certainly a bigger glimpse than if I hadn't gone. And it's it's just so amazing to see mm-hmm. what what all schools can do, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. 
it's awesome. So one one final thought about this, uh, and then we'll bring this to a close. So I'm pretty deep into Posse Salberg's new book called Let Them Play. And mm-hmm. in that book, he makes a very compelling argument that we have lost our collective um, sort of approach to play, that we've just essentially, you know, put it in the closet and said that there are too many other academic concerns and, you know, uh, resume building concerns that we, we've become quite obsessed and that we we don't let kids play anymore. So, you know, yeah. what, what, are, what are your thoughts about that, Danielle? <laughs> Well, you should interview my my friend Debbie Morrow. She is an early childhood educator, and we have this conversation of play all the time. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I also understand that um, play. We have to define play, play in school, and play at home. Um, you know, when I when I talk to early childhood educators, and they talk about play. And I visit a classroom and then they are able to tell me what is happening in this home center with these three kids um, because they have gone in and they are facilitating conversations and they are asking, you know, inquiry based, you know, age appropriate questions for these students. It is incredible. And and our opportunity, that is certainly one thing that we saw in Scandinavia is that they had a lot more playtime. And they also, I guess, I don't know how to say this, but kind of like seemed like they trusted the kids a little bit more. There were very young kids with hammers and saws and sewing machines and uh, needles. And, you know, our world is a little different in terms of Hmm. liability and things like that. And, and I think that that may also have to do with play. You know, I think I, I love to play and I'm, I'm old. <laughs> play is, <laughs> play is, play is important and play is where you get creative and, and get new ideas. And if we stop playing, then we, we might lose the ability to have new ideas. And if we don't have new ideas, then, then we're in trouble. Mm. So Danielle Mizuta, that is a marvelous thought. And I think it's a great way to bring this interview, this episode to a close. So Thank you. It, it is a privilege to call you a friend and treasured friend and colleague. Um, we go way, way back, and I was really <laughs> looking forward to today. And, you know, I just have to share two quick thoughts with you. One is it, it was really a privilege to work through your resume and to see all of the things that you're doing. It's very inspiring. And another thing that really popped out at me, and this will feel a little bit like a PSA at the end of the episode, Danielle, but, you know, <laughs> What I, what I really came away with is that across our public, private, and charter schools, there are thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dedicated professionals who are working their tails off on behalf of kids. Yes. And it's just amazing to think about. And so we should be aware of that. The public should be aware of how much these people care about kids. They do. It's the best job in the world and it's the hardest job in the world but I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for anything that's fantastic so thank you Danielle stay safe you and your family stay safe and healthy and we'll talk to you again soon thank you so much this was a great experience I really appreciate it okay take care bye and now it's time for a listener review this one comes from Susanna Johnson at Individualized Realized and is titled Thinking About the Education Revolution. 
Susanna writes, fantastic probing into what is happening in Hawaii and the world in the name of making education be what it should and can be right now. Josh Rapoon's knack for cultivating critical thinking with excellent questions reaches the passion inside educators who are fighting the good fight every day in the name of humanity and inspires us all to stay curious and continue on the path for education excellence. Wow, thank you, Susanna. I promise to continue probing into the far corners of this state and beyond to learn what school could be and help with the good fight. If you like this series, please give us a rating and review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Galad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his email address and Facebook URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsinhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Stay safe, wear your masks, practice physical distancing, and please bring kindness and compassion into the world. See you soon. <laughs>